The HSJ Health Check podcast is sponsored by Cisco. Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast where each week we bring you expert insight and analysis on the biggest issues in health policy and the NHS. I'm your host Annabelle Collins and this week I'm joined by senior correspondent Rebecca Thomas, South Eastern Ambulance Services specialist correspondent Alison Moore and employment reporter Nick Tuno. So this week on the podcast we're going to be focusing our discussion on the NHS workforce. Before COVID came along, the workforce was certainly the main concern for most NHS leaders. And as we head into the winter and a potential second peak, we thought it was time to dedicate a podcast to discussing some of the issues facing the people people who will take much of the strain over the next few months. As workforce correspondent to HSJ, um, I do try to regularly touch base with frontline workers. And over recent weeks, um, I've been told of an increasing sense of anxiety as COVID cases begin to rise, A&E departments begin to fill up and there's an overwhelming backlog of cases and clinics to get through. One doctor working at a large acute trust told me just the other day that um, working acutely, we're starting to see coughs and colds and exacerbations of asthma that come with a change in the weather. Despite the fact people have been desperately making preparations for a second wave and the difficulties winter will bring, I'm incredibly fearful of further disruption and cancellations in the coming months. And just last week, we held our virtual HSJ Workforce Forum, and I was struck by some of the issues raised and wanted to to discuss these with podcast listeners. Um, In particular, we held a really memorable um, session on um, where we heard from frontline um, NHS workers who described kind of the turmoil and stress and kind of um, unprecedented working conditions and they experienced over the peak and kind of real concerns um, about whether they'd have it, whether, you know, the workforce would have the capacity to cope with, um, you know, another surge in cases. Um, So during the summit, there was a real focus on staff wellbeing, um, recovery and support, which were of course really welcome, but I did feel that there was a slight lack of engagement with some of the senior speakers on things like pay um, and also workforce numbers as um, vacancies um, are are ever so slightly rising, but it's quite difficult to compare year from year um, during kind of um, COVID and non-COVID years. Um, In the very first keynote session, I um, was kind of interviewing Prana Asar, NHS England's chief people officer. Um, I asked her about the second and arguably more important people plan. And I think it's fair to say she dodged that question a little bit, but she did hint that there could be um, some slightly tougher negotiations to come in the autumn. Well, aside from dodging dodging your question, <laughs> uh, did, did, did you give you any insights on the future workforce spending? Well, not really. She's, she's sort of... Um, just said that Health Education England had put forward recommendations um, and um, I think the phrase she used was um, plans for the consideration to the government in terms of investment but she mentioned the word trade-offs which I sort of kind of set an alarm bell ringing a little bit for me because it reminded me of an of an interview I did with um, David Bean um, probably about oh gosh 18 months ago now where he talked about there were, there were trade-offs when it came to HE's um, CPT budget um, 
when, you know, when it was when it was cut um, and I was sort of thinking well, what what are these trade-offs going to be but there wasn't really too much more kind of insight on that um, and, and she kind of she also kind of touched on recruitment processes and the need for the NHS to be inclusive and we're going to touch on this I think kind of later on in the podcast but um, yeah it felt it felt like there was just kind of a lack of um, kind of yeah engagement with um, those kind of more more challenging issues of I suppose finance all depends on the spending review at the moment. I mean that's been the excuse for a long time right that we couldn't get any proper people plan figures because of the spending review that, that that's been the excuse for like the past year no, or so. No I know yeah absolutely and I think as well um we've been waiting for well in the interim workforce plan which came out in June 2019 um people were kind of expecting more in that but um the argument all all along has been we're waiting for the spending review but obviously covid kind of tipped everything on its head again um spending review is now expected um sometime at the end of this year that's still kind of unclear um i mean i don't know i wouldn't be surprised if things were maybe pushed back further but i mean I think that would be quite quite difficult for um, NHS leaders and other kind of workforce plan planners to stomach at the moment. You got that scoop um, week before last about the international recruitment, and so clearly it seems gunning for international recruitment um, uh, is part is part of the plan despite COVID right now. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it was actually quite. I mean, I. W- wrote a few stories kind of earlier in the summer around um, the fact that they weren't going to amend any of their workforce targets and international recruitment was still going to be like the biggest lever of staff um, coming over to work in the NHS and kind of bringing those particularly those nursing figures kind of hitting the 50,000 that the government wanted Um, and there wasn't really any movement on those targets Um, I think there was kind of an acceptance that they'd need to be backfilled but yeah the story you're referring to is um, sort of I think it said the trusts collectively so not necessarily individual trusts but collectively need to aim for a 41% increase in international recruitment Um, and in the same week I was um, kind of looking into um, issues in the Philippines where there were hundreds of nurses who um, couldn't come over and there was a lot of confusion about what was going on Um, I think now um, Alison knows about this too but it's been resolved but um, it just the, the two th- the two stories were just kind of completely contradictory and I don't know it seems like a very I mean it's good to be it's good to be optimistic but it seems like a um, a very ambitious target to to set for trust at the moment. I have heard of some trusts that have successfully managed to bring in uh, staff from overseas despite all the difficulties over the last few months but obviously not many and I I suspect there's a maybe a reluctance for people to travel as well. I don't know if you've encountered this, Annabelle, whether Britain is now seen as being a rather high-risk place to go to work. I'm Mm. I'm sure some of the publicity around the um, terrible toll of deaths amongst the Filipino community here must have been back. No, absolutely. I really think so. And I think the thing that, um, speaking to people at HEE, um, before all of this happened, um, 
the thing that they felt they could really offer staff were training opportunities. That was the, the sort of the flag they were flying about why you should come to the NHS, kind of the learning it offered and all those opportunities. But as we know, training is probably in terms of workforce is the thing that's taken the biggest dent. One, well, not the biggest dent, but one of the biggest dents over the last few months. I mean, I've, I've heard of, um, you know, doctors who are unable to progress to become consultants because they've not hit the right competencies. because obviously all electives were cancelled. So I think... Um, yeah, I think I think that's totally right. How appealing is the is the NHS as a place to travel thousands of miles to come and work in now? Um, yeah, sure. And was there any sense at last week's um, summit that actually things could be even tougher this time round with COVID? That staff have worked mm-hmm. incredibly hard over the last five months or so, and are probably feeling fairly shattered. And mm, doing it all again is not much fun. <laughs> No, no, I think I think that I think that did come through. But I think it was sort of the toll on kind of um, the physical health, obviously, and um, staff suffering from um, long COVID um, and kind of, you know, symptoms of COVID that have been lingering. Um, I speaking to somebody the other day they said they had staff members who were um would come and try and work and they just couldn't because they were so exhausted it's a real problem and i think um i really hope that um you know the, the i hope the long-term impact on staff in terms of the physical effects will be recognized but yeah there was the mental health as well um um so i think it was um, dr sonia Wolbeck from nhs england um who kind of leads on kind of the cultural transformation um very much involved in kind of staff well-being she was saying that um staff kind of talking to, to staff members should be the thing that's prioritized um during the next phase and kind of checking in on them and making sure they're okay and kind of prioritizing their well-being but then i, I kind of wondered how that translates to reality so she talked about staff who had to because um you know all their their, their kind of usual um, places they go and pray were all closed staff were having to go and pray in the hospital toilets which is obviously a horrible thing to have to you know to somebody to have to do but um she was talking about you know that shouldn't happen again and I was sort of even with the best intentions how do you kind of protect staff well-being if things do get as hairy as they were in April and May it, I don't know to me it kind of seems a bit impossible it's an interesting so. one. I was um, so that the well-being end um, of it almost seems slightly more difficult than if you were to offer specialist mental health care. Like mm. if you're, it's almost easier to make IAPT available to your staff, for example, than it is to tackle the well-being end of their mental health. For example, humane hours, certainty with PPE, and those were the things that research early in the pandemic showed were the actual important things to, to staff mental health during the pandemic. I mean, then you, you've also got to think of the long term effects after this is all over. But now currently in this situation, it's those, uh, such as you said, finding a place to pray, somewhere to actually have a break. Yeah. Um, actually has the impact in the in the situation. And, and those are potentially harder. I don't know what what you guys have seen across your other trusts mm. no I totally I think they're really hard and I think um there have been there has been some kind of national money put towards um staff well-being support and um they kind of it goes kind of goes up in stages in terms of the support offered but um people have been talking a lot about kind of PTSD and this being something that will 
isn't you know staff aren't going to be able to shake off over weeks and months I mean everyone some people have had a very different experience kind of depending where you are in the country of course like it's you know the whole of the NHS workforce is by no means sort of a homogenous entity but um yeah I agree Rebecca I mean I don't know you obviously you cover mental health for HSJ but how how is the experience at mental health trust kind of do you think perhaps differed from acute trust do you think they felt that kind of that same pressure and kind of anxiety yeah, so it's a, it would be obviously a different situation if we're talking about um, let's let's take inpatient mental health services compared to an inpatient acute services. You're obviously not getting an influx of COVID patients, but equally, your wards have to be uh, you have to maintain infection prevention control on your wards, so you can't really effectively communicate with a lot of patients. Your capacity might be cut down by thirty percent. So for those managing services, you'll have people needing admissions, but and people needing, um, or particularly going into winter, I was having a conversation recently, admissions increases are going right back up for mental health. Mm. So you're having to deal with that, that, that pressure because there isn't the physical capacity to actually treat people Mm. um, as well. Uh, So I think obviously it's a different experience, but I think it's equally, equally as intense in terms of uh, the worry and uncertainty, if that makes sense. I'm saying that, I don't work in either, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, I obviously, um, perhaps, and this is me presuming here, mental health trust might be more aware of the mental health needs of their patients, mm. of their staff. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true, though. No, I think that's a fair theory. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of trust, like we've, I've spoken about this before on some podcasts, but the fact that COVID sort of accelerated all these things that people have been kind of calling out for 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 years. That working in the private sector, I think you completely take for take for granted. But um, like really, really simple stuff like access to hot drinks um, <laughs> and, and parking and, um, you know, all the usual things, but just kind of making your day to day life easier. And I mean, it's been quite sad, actually, to hear about some of these things have sort of slowly started to disappear and kind of ebb away. Um, mm. It's sort of a shame that sort of appreciation and, um, and yeah, kind of looking after staff couldn't have continued. Um, there was another kind of big staffing issue I think it would be good to talk about um, kind of before we move on to um, talking about um, kind of res um, and diversity but and that was around um, staff testing um, and we published a story um, after the event actually with Prana who um, who sort of um, denied that there was a problem with staff testing um, which I think is now the story on HSJ on the HSJ website is I think now got around 50 comments which is definitely the most I've seen in recent weeks that's obviously really hit a nerve and you can understand why Um, I'm sure you guys have seen the same kind of so many tweets from people working in you know primary care secondary care all bits of the NHS unable to to get tested and Alison I noticed that you were tweeting about this yesterday Um, what what kind of thing have you heard about this? Yes well I think there's two issues really and first of all there's NHS staff who believe they may have contracted Covid who can't get tests themselves and I know this has been a concern for NHS providers. Um, they've suggested that that's impacting on service recovery and also preparations for winters. Um, and also the Royal College of Occupational Therapists has um, come out and, and, and spoke about their concerns today. We saw stories last week in some of the media about the length of time it was taking for 
doctors to access tests and for them to get the results back, uh, for example. But I think there's, an, there's another looming problem here, which is really around schools. We know that a lot of NHS staff have school-aged children. And at the moment, about one in 20 children are apparently off because of, of COVID, not necessarily because they've got COVID themselves, but because a classmate has, mm. and then the, the entire class is sent back home for two weeks. Um, obviously with young children, that means there has to be a parent at home to look after them. So I think we're beginning to see healthcare professionals who can't get to work because they've got a seven-year-old at, at home who obviously can't be left all day. And I can see that it's going to become quite an issue as we move forward. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm hearing that some trusts have substantial numbers of staff off. I, mean, I was told about one trust in the Midlands that had 160 staff off last week for COVID-related wow. reasons. Mm -hmm. And that really begins to bite at your, your ability to get back to anything approaching normal. Mm, yes, absolutely. And I've, I've kind of heard that trusts have been kind of putting out for more and more locums and um, which is quite interesting seeing as there's a lot of pressure on them to reduce kind of um, locum spend. I think now it's kind of inevitable that it's, it's just going to raise again with all those vacancies, all those people off even. Um, but it's, yesterday, I think Matt Hancock, um, when he was speaking in the Commons, didn't he say that NHS staff would be the kind of the prioritised for testing? Yes, I think that the top priority under the, the new prioritisation regime for tests. Mm. Um, so in principle, this should make it a lot easier. Um, they're head of the queue for any tests and hopefully those test results will come back quickly uh, mm. because obviously um, staff are likely to have to self-isolate until it's been confirmed that they're negative. How that's going to work out in practice may well be another matter. And it'd be very interesting to hear from our, our listeners about um, what happens over the next couple of weeks. And if they do see a position where it becomes easier for staff to get tested and to get timely results. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Anyone out there? Who, yeah. Sorry, Rebecca. Yeah, I, I presume that prioritisation didn't extend to care staff. Uh, care, social care staff are, are, are mentioned, but I don't think it's entirely clear whether they're going to be prioritised or whether it will be people in social care settings, uh, residents who are prioritised. Mm -hmm. I think it, yeah, it sounds like one of those things that they've not quite worked out how it's going to happen in, <laughs> in, 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 um, in reality. But um, yeah, hopefully we'll see some... Um, of an improvement in the situation but yeah if anyone's listening do get in touch with us if you have noticed um you know better availability of staff testing um i think now's a good time to move on to um kind of our second main topic of discussion in this podcast um which is um a bit of an update really on what's going on um with the workforce race equality standards kind of measurements um some of the work that's being done on diversity and um i'm really interested um to hear from Nick actually who obviously covers this patch area for HSJ um, on well what's happening in this area at the moment well with the <clears throat> with the res uh, with sorry with the workforce rate equality standard it seems like we've come to an important point in its in its life since uh, since it was conceived in that you now have Yvonne Cockhill, who's retiring from the NHS at the end of this month. You have Habib Nakvi, who was its interim director 
after Yvonne uh, was announced that she was leaving, now going to the Race and Health Observatory. So now those two leaders of the res are departing. You have Jenny Douglas Todd and Mike Franklin, who were recently appointed as joint directors of equality and inclusion, coming in, potentially coming in with new ideas, maybe a change in direction, maybe, you know, taking on some of the things that Yvonne and Habib had been doing before, but it also implementing their own sort of flavor and ideas that they have uh, coming into it. And it's important for one of two reasons. Firstly, for the two people leaving, as I mentioned before, but also the fact that after five years, it may well be in Proina's mind to look at the res and see, you know, take stock of what has already been done, what has been achieved, the successes, maybe where it could improve, and then maybe look at maybe restructuring the way that they go about it. Do they do they appoint from within in terms of getting new directors? Do they appoint from outside? Do they maybe fold the res into a more comprehensive uh, system in terms of reducing workplace workplace inequalities, and then also this you know the suggestion of uh, Sir Simon Stevens stepping down or is expected to step down next spring. That that's a much broader question for the res. In that, if the next person that comes in doesn't quite have the same sort of focus on something like the res what is the res's future so those are the kinds of questions that have been popping up a little bit about the res and even more so with the fact that with the res having shown you know slight decreases in some of its indicators maybe not as much progress in in certain uh areas you then have to refresh it a little bit and think about how you can get those going in the direction that a lot of people want it to go into. Never mind the fact that the report that basically looks at the NHS's arm's length bodies came out the other week. Um, my colleague Alison reported on that and showing that there's been very little progress on that front. I mean, NHS England may well look the better of the ones that were reported on, but it's still not as we still haven't really moved the needle as far as as one would have expected. Um, so that so really what I'm saying is that we're at a critical juncture really with the with the res in that the people that come in next and the people who have joined in in terms of Jenny and Mike, but also further people who may be appointed. Where does it go from here? How do you make sure that the res is continuing to kind of reduce those workplace inequalities as was the a target from the start and yeah just continuing to 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 kind of look at those questions from Prana's perspective as to how she then takes this forward as a NHS's chief people officer. Isn't it a question of I mean how do you how do you give the res teeth really how do you it's it's, it's an important tool to measure progress but it doesn't actually what does it do in terms of changing and increasing um, um, diversity uh, across and, and in, uh, so yeah should there be a question to answer about how how you give the res teeth and actually make it have an impact? I think it already does have teeth in the sense that these nine indicators do specifically look at areas of the NHS where there had been particularly 
difficult uh, experiences for black, Asian and minority ethnic staff. I mean, if you look at the res indicator for the proportion or number of people who are from BAME backgrounds who enter disciplinary proceedings, if you look at mandatory training, if you look at, you know, those kinds of metrics, it, it, it does look at the, the processes behind those and trying to put them in, the, in a way that doesn't, it, you know, disproportionately affect black, Asian and minority ethnic staff. So it, it does have teeth in the sense that it, it holds a mirror to the NHS. I suppose where there are concerns is how to, first of all, stop maybe massaging the figures a little bit to make, you know, one particular trust look better than it actually is. Um, that that's something that was brought up in a in an interview I did with Yvonne this morning, um, which will be published by HSJ at some point. In that, she said that there were some trusts who were maybe you know using loopholes uh, as a way to to kind of get away from from reporting what is really truly the, the the results of some of their indicators so for example as i brought up before with with um with uh entering disciplinary proceedings if it's formally recorded by the trust then it would go into the res but if you package it in a different way and put it as you know what she said was mandatory tra training then you don't have it formally recorded but it's still in basically the same but with a different name it's just a, it's just packaged differently um so that's the first one and then the second one is just overall the culture um as we all know changing culture in in such a large organization is one thing let alone when you do it for an entire health service so it's 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 it takes a lot to to try and get people to kind of all move in the same direction and i guess it's only because that the res is the main focus for how we do that it it takes a, quite a bit of the stick but but ultimately um it's only one part of a much larger issue which is tackling racial equality and and it will take a few more mechanisms than just the res to 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 get that done I think one area where yes. red does has, have teeth is that it's very public and I'm sure the arm's length bodies were suitably embarrassed from the story I did showing that they really were making very little progress. Um, but unfortunately, although we cover that and we cover things like um, the, the Birmingham area having very, very few um, board level people from a BMA background. Zero. <laughs> I mean, that's very few. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't get picked up by many other media and I think that's a shame mm -hmm. and it would be great if every trust res report was read by its local paper and featured in their headlines but it just doesn't. Mm. I think that's a really good point maybe that says something to the sort of slightly um, worrying state of um, local newspapers <laughs> at the moment in this country which is really sad but um, I think before we um, wrap up this week um, I just wanted to um, ask Nick again um, slightly on spot around risk, assess risk assessments there were some um, 
interesting comments made by Joan Myers, um, who is a director and trustee um, at the um, Florence Nightingale Foundation. And she said that there were some adverse effects that have um, come out of some of the risk assessments. Um, for example, staff being told um, because of certain characteristics, particularly kind of weight and BMI, um, that they were unable to work in um, clinical areas and unable to do their jobs properly. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on this and um, perhaps you know, just the risk assessment scheme um, more generally? Yeah, so the update really is that there isn't really one. It's more of a question of what now, given that the risk assessment deadline is long past. Uh, trusts were given until the end of July to get them all in. Uh, NHS England made a, a big, you know, demand of trust to, to kind of get them all done within a certain time frame. The trust did that. Um, how many got to 100% we don't know because we only saw the first window as we reported from that time um so now it's kind of like okay so so now what i mean every now and again i've heard the phrase tick box um with regards to risk assessments it's just a tick box exercise it seems does it have a tangible difference to the people who are being protected against covid-19 you know the people who are more vulnerable to it with underlying health conditions or from a bane background so on and so forth um one trust director that i spoke to uh said that they hadn't heard about uh risk assessments in a while so from NHS England so that in and of itself suggests that it's not quite as much of a priority at the moment in terms of the next phase of it from the national perspective as it as it was at the time otherwise you may well have seen another kind of request or another kind of directive in terms of making sure that that these risk assessments were followed upon from when they were first told to get them in um, and moreover, one thing that I'm quite interested in is how NHS England and NHS Improvement would quantify this as a success. I mean, yeah, you can have high rates of risk assessments being completed, but that's only one part of the story because the other question is, how have they helped to protect staff from coronavirus? And in what ways can you really kind of measure that success in terms of putting them in a safer position to work? You know, what strategies are you basically putting in place to make sure that the risk of coronavirus is mitigated as much as possible? Um, I'm not saying that, you know, risk assessments themselves are just the single antidote to eradicating the threat of COVID-19 to vulnerable staff, but it's an important tool. I think we can we can agree with that. And moreover, given how NHSC and I went about setting about a hard de deadline to get trust to do it, there aren't questions about are there not questions about whether it was successful or not? You know, how can we know that it was actually an effective tool in terms of getting coronavirus uh, mitigated in terms of a threat? And and also more more pointedly is that we don't actually know how many trusts ended up completing the risk assessments before the deadline, as I don't think NHS England has released that data. I mean, one source did tell me that they don't plan to make it a secret, but, you know, where, where's the data to to kind of show where, where we are with that. Um, mm. to, to more to your point about the adverse effects of risk assessments, it'll be interesting to see more about that because uh, as you said, you know, the, the, the kind of effects of it may well be borne out in how staff 
but then work and are treated and so on and so forth. So it'd be interesting to look at that going forward into the into this uh, winter period. Um, but again, the, the the lack of transparency on on how many risk assessments have been completed, you know, how this is being measured as a success, it makes it difficult to kind of answer a lot of these questions and ultimately it leads to uncertainty about what the overall strategy is among staff, because if they don't know, then then how would they know how the NHS is actually tackling this? Nick, I don't know if you've come across this, but I noticed in, when I was looking at the Trust Board paper earlier today that they had a significant proportion of staff who declined to, to undergo this risk assessment. And I wondered if that was because of fear of the outcome and that mm. it might affect where they could work and you know, potentially they may feel that their, their, their jobs are at risk if they, they can't yeah. work in the front line and can't do anything else. Yeah, uh, I can see that as being a, as an issue. Um, there are people who will say that there's no point in doing a risk assessment, but then there are other people who say, I don't want to do a risk assessment for fear that it will adversely affect my job. Uh, you know, in certain areas, there are same staff who don't feel comfortable with the leadership that they work under. And if they do a risk assessment, what does that do for them? So, yeah, no, I, I can completely understand that. And that's also another question to fold into the what's next of this of this situation because ultimately coronavirus is not going away for a long time. The risk assessments is only one part of what is a much broader plan to help mitigate this problem. So there have to be questions asked about, you know, those who are declining to take the risk assessments in terms of how can we make sure that they are not adversely affected by their by their decision not to take it and put and also just give them the confidence that they are not going to be adversely affected in the sense that they're not going to be put in a position uh, in their job that that makes them feel uncomfortable or or just you know other reasons that that just wouldn't make sense. Mm, thank you Nick. Um, I think on that note we're going to have to wrap up but I think just for all listeners watch out for Nick's interview with um, Yvonne Cockhill which hopefully will be published either this week or early next um, and thank you also to Alison and Rebecca um, for joining me today on the podcast. And to remind listeners, the HSJ Health Check podcast is available each week on our website and across all main podcast channels. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe and share and rate our podcast um, to get to get more people um, listening each week and um, get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us discuss. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>